The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to another episode of Breaking Battlegrounds with your hosts, Sam Stone and Chuck Warren. Folks, we have another great show with unbelievable guests lined up for you today. Leading off our program, Steve Malloy. He is the founder of JunkScience.com, an environmental and public health consultant, recognized leader in the fight against junk science uh, with more than 33 years of experience, credited with popularizing the term. And there is a lot of junk science out there we could be getting into, but the biggest one is the environmental junk science. Steve Malloy, welcome to the program. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. So you, when you got into this, because this is – the left has essentially two weapons that they have wielded against the right probably most effectively, one being the environmental movement, the other being abortion. We've seen that recently. Right. But the environmental movement – is built on a foundation that is so unbelievably fractured and flawed. What you're doing has to come to the forefront, right? I mean, where, where did this I, – I, I know I'm hitting you with a big question, but where did this start – <laughs> that, this, that this went off the rails this badly. And, and, and talk about creation, too, of the world when you get right, yeah, no, Go but, ahead. Yeah. But where did this well, – I mean, there has to be a point where environmental science became – started to become junk science. What was that? You know, it, it, it's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you can uh, trace it back as early as the 1950s with the uh, scare about nuclear fallout. Um, I've got a pretty good um, story at the top of my website, junkscience.com, about that. I would say the one that most people probably are familiar with is Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, where she tried to scare everyone about um, you know, pesticides, especially DDT, claiming that you know, DDT was killing birds and whatnot. None of that was true. And you know, I, I think the environmentalists learned to lie from there, and they have done a pretty good job of it ever since. I, I remember that one particularly well because at the time we lived in far upstate New York, which anyone who's ever lived in far upstate New York knows you're lucky if you survive your childhood without being carried off by a cloud of mosquitoes. <laughs> um, and that cloud became distinctly worse immediately after people stopped using DDT. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and, you know, it's the first thing that the U.S. EPA really did when it was formed by Richard Nixon. Uh, It banned uh, DDT in the United States. And, of course, that ban was exported to the rest of the world, which has resulted in the, you know, needless deaths of tens of millions of black and brown people around the world. Uh, people that you know the left claims to represent, but of course they don't. They really want to get rid of these people. You're talking about malaria deaths from yes, yeah. Well, all, all, yeah, malaria, dengue, just all these mosquito-borne diseases. I mean, you know, Washington D.C. And, and 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 America was made safe from mosquitoes through DDT. Same with Western Europe, uh, and we have denied that to places like Africa and Latin America and Asia, it, which is astounding because historically mosquitoes chuck are like the number one killer in history they, they are the they number make one killer. every every other yeah, no. mass murderer look like a, yeah, a no i mean they shouldn't call people serial killers they should call them mosquitoes <laughs> right. because they are right. large killers. steve look I, I think the one thing people misrepresent and environmentalists try to do this is if you go encounter what they put out as facts or yeah. how they are loosey-goosey at the numbers they make it seem like you don't care about the environment. And I think that's, a re- I think that's ridiculous because most people I know, um, especially conservatives, they love the environment. They go outdoors. They love it. They don't want to see, you know, they don't want to see condos on top of a mountain. They don't want to see any of this stuff. By percentage, right? conservatives are far more likely to be country right. and suburban so, living in, in, in open-air environments. So yeah. as they go and talk about, you know, cl- climate change and global warming, and then they go and push against in nuclear plants. How do they expect us to take them seriously? Because could you really change anything they want to do without more nuclear energy? 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot that you raise there. I mean, of course, we all care about the environment. We all breathe the same air, drink the same water. The notion that they're somehow more worried about safety than, you know, the rest of us is just crazy. Um, with respect to nuclear power, of course, nuclear power is perfectly safe. Um, y- you know, it's if, if, if you are, uh, for some reason, uh, concerned about emissions, it's emissions-free. Um, and, and, and it would seem to be the uh, solution to, you know, uh, climate concerns. But, of course, they oppose nuclear power. They always have. I mentioned when we started the whole scare about nuclear fallout. Well, that, you know, the left has never liked nuclear power. Um, and so they tried to, you know, get rid of it with a nuclear scare, a nuclear fallout scare. And it went, you know, they've always opposed nuclear power. Uh, they were finally able to really stop it in the United States with the Three Mile Island scare, which was really a bunch of nothing. Um, yeah, but Three now, Mile you know, Island they, worked, right? Like the safety features oh, yeah. worked. It proved oh, yeah. the model actually has yeah. the safeguards that it needs. Yeah. Uh, well, the whole radiation thing has just been way, way, way overblown. I mean, uh, you know, it's so expensive to build nuclear power today because of these of the, the, of the science fraud that has gone into the radiation scare. Once again, I've got this fantastic story at the top of Junk Science. It's a must read for anybody that's interested in nuclear power to find out what's really going on. Uh, but, you know, so even today, even as terrified as, you know, the left wants you to be about emissions, they oppose um, nuclear power. Of course, you know, they also oppose the siting of wind farms and solar panels and transmission lines for, so, you know, what they what 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 they're really trying to do is just cause chaos in society, and out of chaos, of course, comes their goal, which is government control of all of us. I, I I've always posited government control is one aspect of it, but at their heart, these folks are eugenicists who are are well, bent on population reduction. Right. 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 Well, uh, th- that you know that's absolutely right, and and I think this you know goes back to at least the mid '60s with uh, Paul Ehrlich, who uh, a Stanford professor who is for some reason the, um, in the in the National Academy of Sciences. The guy's never been right about anything. Anyway, you know he declared uh, that the carrying capacity of the Earth is two billion. Of course, we're at eight billion today, but Paul Ehrlich is still at two billion. <laughs> And when you look at what the green agenda is going after our energy supply and our food supply, the, t- the two things that have taken us from, you know, less than a billion people pre-industrial to now more than eight billion, um, you know, they're, they're really they're, they are they are they expect to get rid of 75 percent of, of the world's population, at least through their policies. We're with Steve Malloy. Um, you can find his work on junkscience.com, and he's written over a 1,000 articles in the Wall Street Journal, various newspapers. So look him up. We are going to post on our social media the top story on junk science, emails reveal bureaucrats censor radiation risk science fraud by canceling whistleblowers. All right, so you've, you've, you have, you've had a fun week. The New York Times on December 29th had this front page graph, a new spike <laughs> in global temperatures, yeah. which you refuted, refuted with actual numbers, which they did not take kindly to. Could you explain a little bit about that and why their numbers are wrong? Well, sure. So, you know, 2023 has been an unusual year. Uh, you know, uh, we, we think it's been unusually warm. And, of course, um, you know, environmentalists are celebrating this because, uh, there had been no global warming in the previous eight years, despite, you know, 500 billion tons of emissions. I mean, it's really a problem in their thesis. So, so this year it was warm, and, and so they're trumpeting this on their front page. And, you know, I just look at all this stuff now. You know, there, this notion that we have these global temperatures, you know, the, the New York Times runs this graph with no error bars, as if, as if there's something called the global temperature. There, you know, the global, average global temperature is not a physical quantity. It has, there's no reality to it. No one lives there. Where would you take it, even if you could? Uh, you know, the Earth is a big place. Um, you know, the, you know it, it can be... 50 below zero at the poles and 100 degrees at the equator. And what's the average temperature? What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. Right. Um, The temperature measurements are very imprecise. Uh, The best U.S. 
um, surface data sets, they're not accurate to within a whole degree, you know, one degree C, which is the amount of global warming they claim has happened since, you know, global warming began. <laughs> uh, it's just the whole thing is just crazy. But, uh, you know, they, they, they have such, uh, um, you know, such power in the media and they, they own every institution, all the universities, the governments, uh, state governments, international governments, all these other organizations, the UN, and we're constantly bombarded with this stuff. They just expect you to believe whatever they print and they just print literally anything. Um, the other day, the New York Times, you know, had a, on its editorial page uh, a piece called The End of Snow. Like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, the Sierra, the Sierra Nevada just got uh, almost a foot the other day. These people are insane. Well, and, and last winter was one of the best snowpack winters in yeah. history in the West. But do you, do you do you believe that they sincerely hold their views to be true? Are they or are they sort of the George Costanza? If you if you believe well, it's I true, think, it's not a lie. I mean. What is it a mix? It I think part of them yeah. is a scam and part of them are true believers. Is it, you know, we, we've got this in conservative circles now. We have our real believers and we have some really tremendous grifters who are doing well with, yeah. the, with the GOP movement right now. Do you feel there – what's the mix on this side? Because, you know, they are real alarmist about it. And I really do think they are freaking out our grade school kids. Yeah. Well, of course, they're, they're doing that on purpose. I mean, they, you know, this is what they, – they prey on the most ignorant people they can. Right. And that's that's why they have all these kids, um, you know, lined up for them. Um, you know what? I, I, look, they all have access to the Internet. They can all see that, you know, even if the United States went dark today and remained dark for the rest of time, more than 90 percent of greenhouse gas emissions would still happen. So what's the point of the United States you know, vanishing itself. I mean, they, you know, they can figure out for themselves that nuclear power is safe, but, you know, they remain blind to it. So I, I think this is intentional. I mean, yes, there are a lot of stupid people. They get caught up and, and become activists for them. You know, these people that glue themselves to walls, the guy that killed himself on the steps of the Supreme Court over climate last year. Um, yes, all, you know, these people have been their minds have been destroyed by the climate movement. But the guys that are in charge, they know this is a hoax. They know why they're doing it. They've got a political motivation. Um, you know, the guys that, that are in the wind and solar industry, those guys are doing it for financial reasons. The oil industry plays along with this for financial reasons. Um, it, it's just this huge scam. Yeah, and there's an enormous amount of government money that's now tied to it, enormous amount of taxpayer money. And all you have to put is the right name on a program, regardless of how successful or how big yeah. a failure it is. We have just about 30 seconds before we go to break. We're going to be coming back with more from Steve Malloy, uh, founder and publisher of JunkScience.com, uh, here in just a minute, folks. And then stay tuned for our second segment. We're going to be talking about all the fun with Claudine Gay and Harvard and the DEI movement with Aaron Sibarium of the Washington Free Beacon. So stay tuned for that. Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, if you haven't checked out Y-Refi, you need to do that right away. If you want to earn a up to 10.25% fixed rate of return, you can go to their website right now. It's invest, the letter Y, and then refy.com. That's investyrefi.com. Learn how you can earn this amazing return. And the best part about it is it doesn't it's not correlated to the stock market. Stock market goes up, stock market goes down, your return stays the same. You have total control over your investment. You can choose to reinvest uh, your interest income, you can choose to take it. And at any time if you need your money back, there's no attack on your principal. You can get 100% of your money back. So check them out investyrefi.com or give them a call at 888-YREFI24 and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. 
All right, continuing on with Steve Malloy. He is the founder and publisher of JunkScience.com. He's done amazing work on the environmental movement, kind of the sham of the environmental movement. Steve, one of the things you've alluded to is the the focus and and panic on the left over CO2. One of the things I, I work with candidates, as most folks know, one of the things I've always talked about with folks on our side is you know, CO2 really isn't the enemy because there's a mechanism for the Earth to deal with that. There are other things we should be looking at. So why isn't CO2 our number one concern, or shouldn't it be? And and what are major concerns that we should be looking at to preserve and protect our yeah. environment? So I, I think the whole emissions-driven warming thing is a hoax. There is you know no scientific evidence that shows that emissions have really impacted our uh, weather or climate at all. And when you're talking about CO2 in particular, you know, it's carbon dioxide, it's plant food. It's colorless, it's odorless. You know, uh, people call it pollution. Even, you know, Nikki Haley called it pollution. It's not pollution, it's plant food. Right. If there were no CO2 in the atmosphere, we'd all be dead because all the plants would be dead. And there have been uh, times when there were far more CO2 in the atmosphere than now. Uh, sure. And there have, you know, um, you know, for the most last uh, 500,000 years, CO2 has been, you know, at that prehistoric level of about 280 parts per million. But, you know, places like, um, you know, Greenland were ice-free, <laughs> you know, 100,000 years ago when CO2 was at 280. Now it's at 420, uh, and Greenland is, a, you know, still a frozen wasteland. I mean, CO2 is not important at all to the climate or weather. It's just... You know, uh, it's the left that has made it this, this boogeyman. Uh, in fact, it's plant food. It's good. We, we need more emissions. You know, the, the earth now is greener than it's ever been, as far as we can tell. And it's because of the warming we've had and the CO2. And that's good because we use that for, you know, that is important for agriculture that we use to feed the world. What are our constructive steps conservatives can take for the environment? We, we all want to live in a in a world of clean air, clean water, right? It's the one thing I think we all agree on. So what are steps you think we can take that are not part of this fairy tale narrative, this right. crisis that they put on us? Okay, so you know, when I started doing this 33 years ago, the environmentalists uh, you know, pretended to be concerned about a lot of issues in the environment. Today, everything has focused into climate, you know, because that's where they, they that, that's how they can achieve their end That's goal, where the money is, too. Right. But we do have, you know, real environmental problems, um, like stormwater runoff, uh, like nutrient enrichment of, you know, rivers. Uh, you know, we're having groundwater depletion issues all over the place. So, I mean, these are, these are real environmental problems that, you know, we should be addressing, which we could address, uh, with smart engineering and, and smart solutions, um, but we're not because all our you know public resources and attention go into wind farms, <laughs> and solar farms, and EV nonsense. You know we're spending. Uh, you know Sam mentioned the the you know, the money that all the hundreds of billions from the Inflation Reduction Act that are now going into this climate hoax. Uh, you know, we could be if, if we're going to spend that money, and I'm, you know, I'm not for the government just spending money willy-nilly. But if we're going to spend money like that, you know, we've got stormwater systems in every city that need to be fixed. Uh, you know, instead of recycling, which has been a total failure, we should be building modern incinerators. We can burn trash for energy, and we won't have you know plastic bottles and you know floating in the ocean. We won't have to export trash to Africa and Asia for them to you know throw in their rivers. Did Did you see the piece some guys in Canada did where they put uh, GPS trackers in their plastic recyclables? No, no. no. Oh yeah, it's it's brilliant because they track it right out into the ocean where it gets dumped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we you know we we pay foreign countries to take our trash and and, and to do something with it and do they yeah what they do is throw it in the rivers well, and, you, which winds up in the ocean. I think even the New York Times or Bloomberg, I forget. I think Sam, I sent you this a couple of years ago, where China said they were not going to take any more of the recyclable stuff from um, Europe because 
they couldn't do anything with it. They have their own recyclable. Right. When I was at the city of Phoenix, we found out that that one of the plastic recycling companies we were using was literally ship, taking their ship halfway out into the middle of the Pacific, dumping it and turning around and coming back with a different name. They were pretending one ship was two. <laughs> That's great. Well, you know, the, the U.S. EPA admits only 8% of plastic is actually recycled. The rest of it just gets thrown away someplace. You know, we should just burn for energy. We, you know, we can do it cleanly. Yeah. So and that, um, so that brings, win Okay, so you're, let's just say there is a Republican nominee. I don't know if you're Republican or not, but let's say you're, you're, there's a Republican nominee for president. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just, I'm letting you be objective here. So there's a Republican nominee for president, and they bring you on as their environmental advisor. What would you tell them that they should go and campaign on to let people know they care about the environment? So you'd like, for example, the stormwater systems is a perfect example. What would you yeah. tell them? Say, look, this is what you need to do to make our communities better and it fits the checkbox for people who want something yeah. done in the environment. Well, so, you know, water is really important to the agricultural uh, communities in the West and in California. They need more water. They don't need to spend more money for water. Uh, they, need to, they just need more water. And we could have more water. You know, we can desalinate from the Pacific Ocean, uh, which could uh, alleviate the groundwater problems we have. You know, we, we, can, we can, there are technologies that we can help farmers reduce uh, that, that will improve their crops and reduce the you know flow of fertilizers into rivers, which is you know crapping them up with algae. The, the, you know stormwater. You know we we need politicians need to talk about real problems that we have, and 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 dismiss these fake problems. And you know it, it takes courage. I mean I think someone like Donald Trump, for example, could do it. Um, he's got you know. Uh, He's got the standing. He could challenge anything he wants because he does. <laughs> uh, but 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 anybody could do it. You know, DeSantis could do it. I mean, and he talks oh. about Florida. In Florida, they have real problems with the Everglades, so they're they're working on that. But none of that's got anything to do with wind farms and solar panels and climate nonsense. No, absolutely not. I was at Freedom Fest this year, and and RFK Jr. spoke. He spent thirty minutes, forty minutes on environmental runoff, water runoff issues. And he got a standing ovation from the room at the well, end. Well, sure, because you can yeah. fix it. That's yeah. the thing, too. You can yeah. literally fix it. I mean, look at the poor manatees in Florida. That's a runoff yeah. issue. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, these, these problems can be fixed. There's, there are technologies for it, but, but no one is interested. And the environmentalists have completely abandoned this because of climate. And the long-term, and really the long-term profits are not there <laughs> for just fixing something and moving on. Steve Malloy, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we definitely hope to have you back on the program in the future. Uh, this was fantastic. If, folks, you want to follow him, go to JunkScience.com or on Twitter, actually, uh, at JunkScience. Um, brilliant work that folk, more folks need to be paying attention to because we can do a lot to improve our environment and protect it. We just have to stop paying attention to what the left wants us to do. Steve Malloy, thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate having you on the program. Thanks for having me. Breaking Battlegrounds. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Up next with us today, Aaron Sabarium, staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon, graduated from Yale University, where he was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News. Uh, and prior to joining the Beacon, was an editor at the American Interest. You can follow him on Twitter, at Aaron Sabarium. And he has been leading, really, quite frankly, the reporting on Claudine Gay and the scandal that has developed there with plagiarism and everything else that's been involved. Aaron Sabarium, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, Aaron, I have two questions to start off with, which have nothing to do um, with Claudine Gay. First of all, you went to Yale. Did you go as a young, high-minded progressive? Were you a little more non-political when you started Yale? How, how did that metamorphosis happen for you? Uh, I was probably somewhere in between. I would say I came into Yale like a center-left Democrat, um, you know, supporter of Barack Obama, critical of political correctness, uh, thought free speech was important, things like that. But generally on, on most policy questions um, and in terms of political kind of tribal affiliation, certainly saw myself as, as more liberal than conservative. And being a student and a graduate of Yale, do you feel that if you had created plagiarism 
has been cited for Miss Gay. Would you have stayed in school or would they have kicked you out? Probably would have depended on the frequency, right? right. Uh, for any one of these cases, I, I don't think there would be serious consequences. At worst, you might fail. Well, failing an assignment is pretty serious. You know, it's possible that the professor would just tell you, hey, you got to rewrite this paragraph, don't do it again um, for a single case. Uh, but I can't imagine that uh, 50 different examples of plagiarism across numerous courses, uh, I would have, I'm sure I would have been suspended at a minimum and, and possibly kicked out. Okay, great. All right. Well, thank you for that. I just wanted to know that a little bit about your background and your, your opinion on that. Okay. So Claudine Gay has resigned. She has um, gone down and played the race card and other items. After her disastrous testimony with the MIT and the University of Pennsylvania presidents, and the University President University of Pennsylvania president resigned like when four days after the hearings, is that about right? Four or five days? Yeah, I think that's okay. right. That's right. What brought about the plagiarism things? I mean, how did this start? Does it just seem to take like a snowball going down a hill and gain more and more and more? How did this come about? Sure. So uh, the I believe it was. Sunday night um, before the Harvard Corporation was meeting to decide Claudine Gay's fate in the wake of that hearing, uh, Christopher Rufo publishes uh, a few of the initial allegations uh, relating to Gay's dissertation. Um, And then the following evening, I publish a piece that contains like about a dozen cases and references uh, several more. These are all distinct from the examples Rufo surfaced. Um, and from there, yeah, it kind of snowballs. Uh, there's a complaint lodged about a week later that details about 40 total allegations of plagiarism, including those that uh, Rufo and I had already reported, um, as well as some that the New York Post had uh, obtained. Uh, and then uh, a week later, on, on uh, January 1st, in the evening, about I think it was about 7.30 p.m. Um, we publish a follow-up story detailing six additional allegations, including some that are, I would say, on the more severe end of the ones that have been surfaced so far, you know, large chunks of text lifted without attribution. Um, and then within uh, within 24 hours, she was gone after that January 1st report. One thing I keep wondering about, Aaron, is... It doesn't seem likely that Claudine Gay is the only example of these these sort of very weak ag- – I mean, throwing away the plagiarism, her academic track record was incredibly weak for anyone to become a professor at Harvard in the first place, much less its president. How much more of this is out there at all the rest of these universities? And I apologize. We only have about a minute left before we go to break, and then we're going to be coming back with more from you there. I, you know, it's hard to know how common it is. I, I suspect it is more common than a lot of people realize, although I will say that the scope and scale of gays plagiarism is probably more severe than, than what I would expect a normal academic to have in their background. Is this something that the, the question I have, and we can talk about this actually when we come back here, um, but Chuck, you, you, always like to talk about the need to have real journalists on, a, on the right. Correct. Um, is this something that highlights the need for more real investigative journalism on the right? Because I, I think a lot of times it just becomes a, a parrot trap um, of social media where people are not really doing the background investigation. So, Aaron, I want to get your thought on that when we come back here. Uh, Folks, stay tuned. We've got more from Aaron coming up. And then also be sure you stick around for our podcast segment and download that. Breaking Battlegrounds will be back in just a moment. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true.
Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, you've been hearing me talk about Y-Refi for a while now. Y-Refi has been getting a ton of calls, and we thank you for supporting an investment that actually helps people. Uh, first off, let's get some facts. It's true. You can earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market. You can turn your income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There are absolutely no fees, and there's no attack on your principal if you need your money back. And you get your monthly statements every month, no surprises. If you're not sure if you trust this economy, the secure collateralized portfolio may be a good option for you. Check them out. Invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. That's investyrefi.com. Or give them a call, 888-YREFI24, and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. I'm following up a little bit what Sam said. One thing that uh, conservatives are missing is true investigative journalism. Um, we talked about this many times on the show. It's just not enough of it. No, out there. we just regurgitate what's on Twitter or something of that nature. And what you've done here is original investigative journalism. Do you feel a we need more of that for moderates, right of center people? Just I'm not just talking about liberals. Moderates, right of center, and how do we get conservative outlets to start putting more time and resources into investigative journalism? need more of it. Uh, the right has historically really dominated at opinion um, and commentary, which has a role and is great, but it's not enough. Um, and in fact, I'd argue that uh, investigative journalism like this in particular, it, it just has far more of an impact than any one op-ed or, or even detailed essay is ever going to have. Um, there could be exceptions to that, but but generally speaking, I do think investigative journalism is more. This becomes the base industry. that creates the opportunity for that kind of yes. commentary, right? Right. Yes. I mean, so for example, on this story, how many hours? I mean, I'm giving a guess, but I'm sure you didn't keep it for a time card. How many hours did you spend researching, checking sources, things of that nature to get this type of series of articles out since December first? A lot. Uh, I don't have an exact number, but it was it was very time intensive. And I will say, uh, granted, so I'm I'm I am Jewish, so I don't have as much to do on the Christmas holidays as some people do. But I was, you know, I took some breaks, but I was I was working over the holidays, and and yeah, I, I, it's been pretty nonstop since since early December. My, my sister spent over 30 years at the Chicago Tribune. She, she ended up as their lead photographer, and she always referred to Christmas as Jews do the news. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that is definitely what happened in this case. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, so, okay, so why did this story, do you feel, took off as it did versus... There's been other stories conservatives push, like we Fauci. They could be Hunter Biden's laptop. But why did this one? It seemed like everything just came to fruition on this, from students at Harvard saying this isn't fair to donors. But there seem to be more donors at the University of Pennsylvania upset about this than Harvard donors. But why Why did this come and to fruition? Truly no mass protests on campus right. against this. I yes. mean, not of the there, scale. There's some organized stuff, but not of that's the— a, That is a very good point, Sam. But why do you feel that is, Aaron? Yeah, um— I think it was a few factors. Um, one, as you say, the students uh, did begin to really criticize her um, because it was just a very basic unfairness, right? They are held to extraordinarily exacting standards for academic integrity that the school was willing to just totally jettison for not a, not not merely a professor, but for the president of the entire institution. Um, and I think that double standard was just unsustainable and everyone kind of knew it after a certain point. I, I think the other thing, too, is that in contrast to, say, Hunter Biden's laptop, which was initially dismissed unfairly, but dismissed as Russian disinformation by much of the media and uh, the so-called disinformation experts, uh, in this case, it was really impossible to perform kind of dismissal or delegitimization like that because the evidence was just there for everyone to see. You could say, here is the page of Claudine Gay's work. Here's what she said. Here is the page of this other scholar's work. Here's what he said. This, like, you it's, it's you a visual. It's a vi and it was, it, yeah, it's it was a visual. visual. You just couldn't ignore it. You couldn't ignore it. In a, um, and in there was not any kind of plausible, like, argument that could be used to undermine the authenticity. Right. In a, in a meme culture we're in now, it fits that mindset. Look, it's just, it's look on the left, look on the right. As simple as that. 
doesn't take rocket science to, to look it over. Yeah, no, ex- exactly, exactly. Um, and I actually, although the donor revolt, I'm sure didn't help. Um, I, I, as you say, it was really a bigger factor, I think, at UPenn than at Harvard. Um, and and I, it's interesting to ponder the counterfactual of what would have happened without the the congressional testimony and the blowback over anti-Semitism. Would the plagiarism allegations have been sufficient on their own? Who knows? But I don't think it's obvious that they wouldn't have been. I mean, I think the double the double standard was so glaring that uh, even if she hadn't already been under fire for how she handles questions about anti-Semitism, I think this would have been a real issue for her. And it's worth noting that other professors have resigned, presidents of universities have resigned for academic integrity issues, right? There was a guy at the University of South Carolina, I believe the president resigned for plagiarizing a speech. And then um, more recently, the president of Stanford resigned over issues of alleged data manipulation um, or fraud in his research. Um, so, you know, it, it's not it's not unheard of for a scandal like this to sell a university president. Do you think Miss Gay could have kept her job if she'd just come right out and said, I did this, it was a mistake, it's not what's my intention, and been more humble about it instead of coming out and saying things like, you know, people are recycling tired racial stereotypes about black talent. I mean, she wants to take no responsibility. There's no humility in this. There's no meekness in this. Do you feel like if she had handled that differently, the Harvard Corporation Board would just said, we're sticking with her? Yes, but I actually think the Harvard Corporation is is a big part of the problem here too, right? Because it was it was Gay and the Harvard Corporation who together retained this high powered law firm, Claire Law, to threaten the New York Post to suppress the story. And my sense is that that also really did play a role here because there were a lot of faculty who you know, the way it was framed initially was, oh, we did this review and Gay owned up to her mistakes and is making corrections. Oh, it's fine. But then it turned out, oh, actually, that's not what she did. She and the Harvard Corporation conspired to suppress the story through a bogus defamation threat. I think that revelation eroded a lot of goodwill she may have formerly had among faculty members. Um, And yeah, and it's worth emphasizing that legal threat that didn't just come from Harvard in the abstract. The, the letter that the New York Post published uh, threatening to sue for defamation, that letter says that, you know, the Harvard Corporation and Claudine Gay are of the opinion that these allegations are false and would constitute irreparable harm. So, so it's clear that she was in on that legal threat. Um, and I think that that's not just not taking responsibility. That's actively trying to avoid right. accountability for your actions. Right. It, is it concerning at all? I, one of the things that I've seen up close here in Arizona is that Arizona State University really functions more as a high-powered developer than than a university in some sense. It, it's sort of a science university on one end and a developer on the other. Is it concerning that we're talking about Harvard Corporation Board and no one seems to think that that might not be appropriate in education? Yeah, I think I think that's a very good point. Um, and part of the the subtext to this drama that hasn't really been emphasized sufficiently is that uh, Claudine Gay was really a professional administrator. Um, she was groomed for high-level administrative positions for a long time. That's part of why she's produced so little scholarship. Um, uh, and uh, and um, I would say that the part of the issue here is that she's sort of an avatar for an, a huge transformation of the university where these administrative tracks, the, the, the the very possibility of professional administration. This wasn't a career path 50 years ago because there weren't so many administrators. Right. And the, 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 the bloat, the bureaucratic bloat, is in part a function of universities coming to see themselves as businesses and also, to some extent, a function of students and policymakers coming to see them as businesses and treating them that way. Um, but I think that is a big part of the problem here. And, and you know, what I find just speaking for myself, sort of so scandalous about the Claudine Gay affair is that, you know, 
she sort of represents, I think, through her through her violations of these scholarly norms against plagiarism, she kind of represents um, and epitomizes the the way in which the growth of administration and the corporatization of the university has supplanted scholarship and kind of diverted resources from it. I mean, I think these two things are our intention, the kind of corporate model of the university and traditional virtues of scholarship. And I, I hope that this story does serve to indirectly make the public aware of that tension, because I think it's a really, really big problem. Well, it's crucial. Um, have we seen the type of anti-Semitism we've seen at Harvard and University of Pennsylvania and other universities? Have we seen that at Harvard? I mean, at Yale. I'm going to give you the opportunity to plug Yale here. Have you seen it at Yale? Have, have they had that well, problem? I, I, uh, you know, it, some people have asked me, was your reporting on Harvard motivated by a Yale desire? To <laughs> I hope so. I, I hope to, so. And I, well, I, I unfortunately have to disappoint you and say no. I, I'm actually an equal opportunity uh, uh, hater of the Ivy League. I, I, I have written a lot of stories that have hurt my alma mater, including there actually was some low-level scandal at Yale Law School where they there were some pretty brazen double standards around anti-Semitic speech. But, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that at Yale um, and some other places, you've seen double standards, but you haven't seen... You haven't seen anything like the controversies at Penn or Harvard um, over the past couple months. Um, it seems to me that, that at Yale, it really took the form more of just some obnoxious protests and and the universities maybe didn't issue statements as promptly as they should have or, or responded with the moral clarity some might have liked. But it, there really was not any kind of huge showdown the way that there was at, at Harvard. And I don't know if that's just luck or if that's because they handled it. The administrators at Yale were a little more competent. But whatever the case may be, it's clear that Harvard... I mean, Harvard really screwed this one up. Well, they're not used to being—they're uh, not used—they're not used to being questioned. I mean, they're not used to being questioned. Yes. They're elite institutions. Yes, we're supposed to bow to what they say, and I and think their that's, leaders aren't right, used to yeah. being questioned. So, the, so, the board members and that. As we wrap up here, we get about two and a half minutes. Um, I want to talk about Yale for a minute because you have the experience. You went to one of the top universities in the world. It's just not the country; the world. What would be, people be surprised about? about the students who go to Yale as undergraduates? What would surprise them? Because a lot of people don't know someone, you know, well, we all know someone who goes to Harvard because they tell you 20 times, but most people from yeah. Yale don't tell you, right? So what would, so you got two minutes uh, left here. What I, would, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about <laughs> that, but, but, but maybe, maybe, maybe Yaleys are, maybe Yale undergrads are a modicum more modest than Harvard undergrads. I think at the law school level, it's the opposite. Harvard law grads are more modest than Yale law grads. Yale law grads may be the most insufferable. On the planet. I, I was going to say, Chuck, continue, I, I've continue. had a lot of Yale rings flashed at me over the years here. But what, no. but what, what would, for, for, we're on, we get 800,000 listeners on a radio show. Um, what, what would you, what would our audience be surprised about that the students who go to this Yale, for example, what are the students like? Well, what I would say is that probably the majority of them are not the really crazy ones who are responsible for these scandals. There's a large kind of silent, maybe not majority, but at least plurality of students who I think are, are, are vaguely, they're, they're apolitical. Maybe they're, they lean center left, but they're not activists. Um, and they probably privately think that a lot of this stuff is, is bullshit. Um, but uh, they they tend to be silent. Um, they tend to be very responsive to social incentives. Um, and so a lot of what you're seeing at these places is a kind of preference falsification cascade where everyone supports the woke virtue signaling for professional reasons, but there's not actually that much deeply felt support for it. I mean, I think that is an important dynamic to be aware. Yeah, absolutely. Aaron Sabarium, thank you so much for joining us today. Folks, you can follow his work at freebeacon.com. Uh, you can also check him out on Twitter at Aaron Sabarium. Aaron, we really appreciate having you and look forward to having you back on the program in the future. Awesome. Thank you so much. Folks, Breaking Battlegrounds will be back on the air next week, but be sure to, to download and tune in for our podcast segment because we always have a good discussion and you don't want to miss Kipper's Corner, Breaking Battlegrounds. Back on the air next week. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for a political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web. 
with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome back to the podcast segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. I want to thank both of our guests today, Aaron Sabarium, doing great work over at the Washington Free Beacon on the Claudine Gay story, and many others need more investigative reporters like him on the right. Well, and- it would make a difference for the narrative of the country. So, for example, you and I have talked about this. If conservatives are serious about tra- changing the narrative of America, we need to go sponsor conservatives to get journalism degrees, and then they need to go work at actual daily newspapers yes. or do investigate reporting because that's what sets the menu of what local newscasts talk that about. That creates almost almost everything else. I mean, interestingly, like J.D. Vance, his entire rise comes from Hillbilly Elegy. Correct. That book was essentially a couple hundred pages of investigative reporting that no one else was doing. Oh, no one cared right? about. And no one cared about. And nor do they still care about and it. And yet- well, they don't, but that has but changed that the national yeah. conversation yes. and raised his profile to a very different level. We're we're talking about these deaths of despair, fentanyl, meth, and all these other. We're talking about that in a way we weren't before he jumped into that fray. Yeah, uh, you know, going on, following up on our conversation we just had. Um, there's a story out in Newsweek by Sean O'Driscoll. He is a senior crime and courts reporter. So the University of Washington has revealed that an internal whistleblower exposed discrimination against white and Asian job candidates in the psychology faculty. The internal report found that third-place job applicant, who was black, was given a tenure-track assistant professor job last April above a white and Asian candidate who were ranked higher in the selection process. And they talked about through this whistleblower how they were trying to see how we get rid of the Supreme Court hearing. You had one of the professors who was black saying, I don't want any white people on this committee. I don't want, I mean, horrible. And I think that happens a lot. I, I have no doubt it happens all the time, especially universities, but also now corporate settings. It's happening. Um, and, you know, here's the problem. And if you're a, and I've had this conversation with, some black friends who are very high-achieving people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The problem is now DEI is affirmative action on steroids. I mean, it, it's it's just taking this concept to a whole nother level. They said, when I walk in a room, I, I'm insecure because I know a bunch of people in there look at me and think I'm one of those who didn't deserve to be here. That's a, that's a good point. That's a good point that, I mean— this Newsweek article continues. The report also said a member of the faculty of color did not want any white women at the meeting and complained that the interviews were awkward when there was a white candidate. The names of everyone involved was redacted from the University of Washington report. Furthermore, as a person who has been on both sides of the table of these meetings, this is the faculty of color, I have really appreciated them, the person wrote an email, but when the candidate is white, it is just awkward. The last meeting was uncomfortable, and I would go so far as burdensome for me. Can we change the policy to not do these going forward with white faculty? What, what is that? What, what that is is a horrible racist human being hiding behind DEI. They, they're, they're black. I mean, they're, they're, this isn't about skin color. This is about the content of their character, and they're failing the Martin Luther King test entirely. No, it's just it's just it's just horrible. And look, I think we all agree, Kylie does as well, that we want America to be best. I want our elite institutions to be elite, but yes. I want them to have a diversity of ideology and thoughts. That's what learning is about. I want everything in America to be number one. I'm a total homer for America, but the way they're pursuing it is not the correct way of making us the best for generations to come. No, and so much of this, you know, I, I wonder how much of this comes back to the child-rearing theories that came out of the 70s and the 80s where, you know, every kid is special and this, that, and the other thing. And I just wonder if we've reached the point where some of these systems are not savable anymore. Like, we're... Because because the Claudine Gay, uh, you know, resignation, firing, whatever you want to call it, she is the tip of a giant iceberg at Harvard of this DEI garbage. Mm -hmm. And they're not talking about extracting that iceberg and breaking it up. No. And it's one of a herd. 
it's a herd of icebergs from all these universities, these corporations, everything else. This fight has to break all of that up to win. Well, as we talked to Aaron about, I am convinced if she had been more humble, Claudine Gay, and showed some meekness and admit wrongdoing, I think she would still be president of Harvard today. And she would have got the benefit of the doubt on that. I, I think she would have. The difference is that the DEI practice and principle does not allow for humility on the part I, of I agree. practitioners. I agree. But a normal person under situation, if she had prom- practiced meekness and humility, I think she would still be president of it Harvard today. Been the first but time, it's okay. She's still getting $900,000 a year It would have been some the crappy first time in her professional life she had practiced that those things. So, Kai, they think we're going to fire you and give you $900,000. Are you okay with that deal? Deal, deal, deal. All right. I'm taking right. it. So, <laughs> Do I so still have to do my Kylie's Corner? We are here today with Kylie's Corner. Now, her, by the way, her name is now Kylie Kipper Campbell because she was a bride, which we talked about on the show last week now. Yep. Yep. And um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And she, we're very excited for her and him. And so, but we're back. We're back. We're back with Kylie's Corner. Let's. What do we got today? Well, I was trying to be happy today, and then I got uh, <laughs> on a then you open the news. Rampage, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just have a feeling that this year is going to be like the year of prison releases because we've already seen two large ones. So today, this morning, January fifth, okay, um, we had the release of the du- the world famous double amputee Olympian Oscar Pistorius. Oh yes, yes, was it, released this morning. Killed um, his girlfriend. Shot her. Said he didn't know. Yeah, well, they were in an argument, and he shot her and said it was an accident. Um, not sure how that happens, but I'm not here to judge. He got out after serving nine years. It's okay to judge. He was convicted of murder, so we can just <laughs> yeah. call. We can call we, yeah, wait a minute. I'm like, wait, I'm sitting here, I'm like, uh, well, the guy's a murderer. <laughs> this next case, yeah. I'm, you know. Okay. Was, right. But what I really want to talk about was Gypsy Rose Blanchard, because oh, she has a new yes. documentary coming out today, January 5th. Just going to put that out there in case you're listening to it later. You can watch it. Um, but this case caught my attention in 2017 after watching the documentary Mommy Dead and Dearest. And if you guys don't know who she is, um, she was just served and released after eight years um, in prison for killing, convincing her online boyfriend to come over and kill her mom. But her mom, psychologist said, had the disorder um, Munchausen syndrome by proxy, which is where the guardian or parent exaggerates or invents a child's illness. Yeah, they can put them through hell. Yeah, and I I mean... Watch the documentary. It's crazy, but she would get, like, surgeries. They would shave her head. She had, like, a feeding tube most of her life. They would chain her to the bed and beat her because, like, anytime she would try to push back. And so she ended up... She got this online boyfriend. I don't... Because she didn't... Watch the documentary. That's all I have to say. She has this online boyfriend. Convinced him to come over and stab her mom to death while she hid in the bathroom. And um, she was released after eight years. The boyfriend is serving life in prison without parole. And when asked about that, she goes, um, well, I'm sure we both have a lot of regrets. All I can say is that I did my time and he's doing his time for his part. And I wish him well on his journey. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, 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 Um, oh, wow. Wish him well in his journey. Yes. However, she in jail got happily married, apparently, in 2022 um, to a gentleman named Ryan Anderson, who was a middle school special education teacher in Louisiana. After watching his documentary, he was talking... This does not make me more confident about our schools. <laughs> I, I know. This is what scared me, too. But after talking to a colleague, they had said they were writing letters to Joe Exotic from Tiger King on Netflix as well um, while he was in jail and convinced him to write letter. Or So I don't know if he convinced him or he was just like, I'm going to start writing letters to Gypsy Rose. And after that, they just had this amazing emotional connection and they got married after two years of writing letters together. Do you, and do you feel she was justified in... Um can make a justification for her kill, having her mom killed. Um, her mom sounds horrible. Her mom sounds like a horrible person. I, yes. I gotta be I, honest, Chuck. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would, I would have been a very sympathetic you, you juror know the, on this. You know, yeah, the, I, you know, the part I, I don't sympathize with is bringing someone else into it. I, well, I, I would, have, I would have actually felt she was justified in killing her mother. Yeah, I, she see, did herself, I see. Yeah. I think she deserves the life. For yeah. doing that for bringing somebody else. Yeah. Now, now he's a fool, but I wish yeah. him well. Right. That's, yeah. what, that's what. So, like in my <laughs> on mind, his journey. Like, yeah, on his journey. <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, he had to have because she was on a lot of opioid opioids and drugs and whatnot where you know who knows what he was on or whatever but like he essentially was just like a random person that was listening to what she was saying so he probably has some sort of mental illness as well um i might assume that maybe ryan anderson does 
I mean, well. if you if this you ki- all... if you kill somebody because of an online relationship, yes, you're not sane. Yes, because they have I her mean, controlled, I, so I she wasn't allowed to see these... this boy in person or anything like right. that. So these, these prison relationships fascinate me. Me I think too. I discussed it before, but I don't understand the draw. She apparently got many letters lots of people writing to her and expressing their I, I don't love remember and... this much is she attractive is that no. part of the thing no. No. hot she's, women in prison no. are a thing hot men in prison are apparently a thing yeah, too she's, i don't she's, they're not um right now my type they're right not now, my type but kylie of kylie corner is sharing the photo with sam um, yeah no i, I, mean, I look don't... look if you bumped into the street i mean he looks like a nice guy I mean, I imagine there's probably going to be like a TV. They're going to get a TV show because everyone is so fascinated by this. And she has a book coming yeah, out as well. And that's weird that they're fascinated by it. I mean, of all the murder type cases out, I find this the least interesting. So I think also she's also really entertaining social media. So when she went. Yeah, into she prison, plays it. She plays it. Yeah. Like she she posted, you know, people are just really jealous because he has he pleases her every night in a much <laughs> more graphic way. She said that. Um but they're like very open about posting everything on social media and celebrating. So I think like and just writing crazy things. But prior to this, she didn't have social media, right? Like it was almost really a thing. We really are do really do have a voyeuristic society. Yes. yes. I mean, I, I mean, I just I mean, I, I she's on feet stories about her on the feed. And there's some publications that I just block because I don't want to see it or yeah. hide the story. But then there's other things I like to get, you know, because so it comes right. to like. Like, I like to get people on my feed because it has interesting stories, right, sometimes. Right, and, right. And, half, and, half they're short, and they're short, Half right? of it's nasty. Yeah, but the other half is less interesting, yeah, right? You know? Sure. So, anyway. So, yeah. Um, that happened. We might see Woolly Mammoth also in 2024. We'll see. So, so next week, let's talk about- So, so ma- wait, wait, wait. That one just went flying right by. We're going to have Woolly Mammoths <laughs> in 2024? What? Supposedly. <laughs> What? <laughs> well, I can't talk about this because uh, in our first two segments, we're all talking about. <laughs> but suppose there's a group that's uh, trying to bring back woolly mammoths and recreate embryos from past genetics, like and Jurassic then, Park. But the, yeah, basically, and then put them into the Indian elephant because they are 99.6 percent similar to the woolly mammoth, and then. It'll take 22 months for them to birth a woolly mammoth, but the whole point is to put them back in the Arctic well, and, and to the, offset carbon here, here's emissions. The, here's the problem: is how will they commit? How will they offset carbon emissions? The woolly mammoth. I have no idea. Well, okay, so let's cover that next week. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. Here's my thing about this. What you're gonna <laughs> What you're gonna have is some DEI promoted biologist. Who he gets involved with this accidentally crosses a woolly mammoth with a saber-toothed tiger with an African elephant. We're all going to get eaten. Yeah. Well, yeah. they've raised two hundred twenty-five million dollars for this. So two hundred twenty-five million. Yep. You know that type of thing. I gotta be. A woolly I got. I got mammoth. Well, yeah, but I gotta tell you, it's um. I'm I'm finishing up the book by Michael Lewis on San Bankman and the FTX scandal. Um, first of all, I think Michael Lewis has been unfairly criticized through the book he just raises questions about how weird this guy is the whole time so just because you go and you you spend a year of the guy interviewing him and you have a relationship doesn't mean you don't think he's weird and it's very clear in this book he thought he was weird right um but you know there's the altruistic altruistic giving right Right. which is what supposedly really got it into him and i think he believed it to begin with right right um so when i hear things like this 225 million you know what 225 million could do for some bunch of kids in nigeria Right. I mean, yeah. that's what offends me. How about a bunch me. of kids here? I yeah, mean, I mean, that just offends me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that stuff offends me. That's ridiculous. I mean, that, you know it's just some rich, second, third generation wealthy person who has nothing better to do and say, oh my goodness, let's do the woolly mammoth down I, in the Arctic. I am, only, I am only a third of the way into that book, so do not give away anything. But am I right so far here? what you've yeah, read on No, it? you are. Um, I would also add, I'm starting to take away that I think it's his mom. Bankman Freed's mom. Yeah, so I am. The, I am not a big fan of the parents. After I read it, no, I, I, think, I, I, I think they should be held ten times more culpable than they are. I really have started, and obviously, I got two thirds of the book still left to go. But my first impression is, boy, that woman is the center. It of doesn't. This problem. It doesn't get better. She doesn't get better. I yet. wouldn't. Yeah, so, wow. what do we learn today? As Howard Stern would say, we learned first of all that Republicans should be looking at wastewater. 
Yes. And we really should make this an issue because it because that's one of those local issues, too. Yeah, groundwater pollution, right. chemical runoffs, uh, micro microbeads. By the way, it's one of the things I've really gone through my bath products and removed everything with plastic microbeads. Well, you're such a hippie. And then, two, we learned. Well, we also those learned. Things, that, that, look, <laughs> our water <laughs> systems are not designed to deal with them. I know. I know. This, I mean. As a matter of fact, we, why don't you make a list and Kylie will put it on our social media. Let's let's be the environmental friendly okay. show. We also learned today that At we least need, giving me a dubious look. We also learned today we need more conservative investigative reporters because they really can change the narrative. It makes a big difference. It makes a big difference. It's Aaron Sabarium's comment that hey, we've we've generally been pretty good at the the opinion side. Right. Which 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 we all read and share with each other who already agree with the position. Right. But those opinions, you need the foundational work of investigative journalism to inform those opinions and create the issues like this one. Well, you do. But the thing is, like the opinion pieces, and there's some very good ones. I mean, anybody go to the Wall Street Journal every day, they have a great opinion piece, right? The problem is it is shared. You're not sharing it with your left-leaning friends. And they're like, oh, well, I didn't think about that. But the investigative journalist side on this of Claudine Gay changed minds. Well, and it forces coverage by even yes. the major, yes. you know, left-leaning networks as much as they don't want to. And then we learned that University of Washington's a train wreck up there, apparently. I, I've and kind of assumed that for a while because of the state. Washington. And we've yeah. and we've learned that we're a voyeuristic nation, and if you really want to meet your soulmate, there's a lot of people in prison that can help you out here. Yeah. Lots of options. <laughs> Including the Tiger King. Your fish is out there. <laughs> Folks, this is Breaking Battlegrounds. Um, please follow us on breakingbattlegrounds.vote. Anywhere you get your podcast, please share it. We found out today we're the 39th most popular political podcast, and that is very exciting for us. It's a huge. It's huge. It's a huge deal. We haven't even hit 200 episodes yet. Well, and, and we're just... A couple, you know, we're three people from well, four. Jeremy, I'm not, I'm not leaving Jeremy out. We're just four <laughs> random people from Phoenix, Arizona, having fun on the air and informing ourselves three, along the way. Three random dudes and Miss Campbell. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. If we didn't have this, if we didn't have her, we'd definitely be getting sued right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Folks, we hope you have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. 